This is Display Frequency from UK Airshow Review, episode number five. Running into the show, starting! Oh! Yes, hello and a warm welcome to Display Frequency number five. I'm Dan O'Hagan and this is UK Airshow Review's top rated podcast. Thank you for the feedback and comments on our previous shows, most of all for our React special, which absolutely smashed all our previous records for the number of downloads and listens. It's great to know that you're really enjoying these programs. Apologies it's been so long since the last one. It's simply a case of not having enough time to A, record and B, edit the show. They're quite labour-intensive, but hopefully our content in this episode will have been worth the somewhat longer-than-normal wait. Before we start, a plea for help. We'd love to make these shows as interactive as possible, and that means getting you on air with your mini-reviews of events and opinions on the big stories. Now, there's a really easy way to do this. We all, well, most of us now have smartphones. Just download the Audioboo app and record whatever you want to say, then email us the audio file to dano at airshows.co.uk. Simply start your recording by introducing yourself with your name and then get whatever you want to say off your chest. Here's an example sent to us by one of our listeners after React. Hello, I'm Jamie Cook, UCAR member, Young Welsh lad, and this is my React review for Display Frequency. This year, React was superb, a stellar lineup and a stellar flying display in general. I visited Saturday, Vapor was present at its best, and the highlight for me was the Republic of Korea Air Force Black Eagles. Other highlights for me were the MiG-29 from the Polish Air Force, the Rafale from the French Air Force, the RAF Typhoon and also the RAF Chinook which is just brilliant to Stella you. Thank you to Dan, Smith and Ben for the commentary and thank you to DBH for bringing it all together. Oh Jamie stop you've made me blush. Anyway that's what we're looking for so get recording them and then email them in. The address is dano at airshows.co.uk and we promise to use the best of them. Here's what's coming up in today's edition of Display Frequency. Peter Riox been to America and he came back with some terrific exclusives for display frequency, including a chat with the only man to own and fly his very own sea harrier, Art Knowles. Then you can be a winner competition time as we have three copies to give away of a brand new book on the Red Arrows. And we step right back in time with a look at one of the most underrated display teams on the UK airshow circuit, the wonderful Great War display team. See, told you it was worth the wait. This is Display Frequency. Nobody does aviation better. Okay, well, as promised now, we turn our attentions to the airshow scene across the Atlantic. You may have seen the photographs from our reporter Peter Riock on our forums. Well, now he joins us on the line. Peter, hello. Um, you had quite a trip. Which shows and which airfields did you visit along the way in the States? Well, the main air shows we went to were Oshkosh, um, obviously infamous around the world for the AirVenture air show and flying, but also Thunder Over Michigan, which is held at a small airfield called Willow Run, just outside Detroit. And that's more of a aim towards classic aviation, but it's not as strict as, say, for example, Flying Legends. They do try and get the modern mill and classic jets in there as well, so it's a real all-round show. Okay, well, first, Oshkosh, the EAA AirVenture, billed as the world's greatest aviation celebration. 
obvious question. Is it? Pretty much, yeah. There's not a lot I can uh, say bad about it, to be honest. And the scale, you can read about it, you can look at photos, but you have to be there to just experience the scale and just stand in fields and all you can see is aircraft. You can stand in the warbird area and literally all you can see is warbirds. I mean, where else can you sit in a field with over 25 people if you want Mustangs? Sit under them if you want, do whatever, there's no barriers. Watch the sun setting over a field of P-40s and Texans. Just amazing, really. Well, Peter, you touched on there the scale of Oshkosh. I guess that's what it's most famous for, the uh, sheer volume of aircraft. Across the show days, uh, how many of those aircraft will actually fly in the display? Well, in the week, they have like small afternoon air shows, and in those you get the general uh, aerobatics, such as the Red Bull Air Force and all the individual acts like Red Bull Helicopter, and they have showcases, so they pick uh, certain aircraft. For example, the, J- the Junkers 52 that was over from Europe flew quite a lot. And then they have a, a warbird section each day, which in the week is half an hour, and they get an assortment of warbirds. So they might throw up, say, six Mustangs, a Dakota, and a couple of other items. So race track them around the sky. Nothing as dynamic as you'll see it, for example, Flying Legends or anywhere else in the UK, but still nice. But then on Saturday and Sunday, they have warbird spectaculars, which are 90 minutes of pure warbird action. And that's where you get things like the B-29 Fifi, multiple B-25s, and just multiple aircraft, a lot of pyros, a lot of fast action. And this year uh, was the first time that the Tora 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 team were there, and they were really something else. Well, Peter, I'm very jealous because you've seen an aircraft that I would absolutely love to see, and that's the iconic, one-of-a-kind uh, B-29 Fifi. Almost as iconic as the Vulcan, I'd say. You can tell there's a real crowd sort of presence, and everyone sort of, stands up and you can really tell that they're getting excited. To be honest, the first time I saw it, I was a bit annoyed because I just put my camera away, I was coming away for the evening, uh, just making the long walk from, from the crowd line through all the aircraft back to the car park, And because uh, she was due to be in that morning and hadn't been, and I sort of forgot about it with all the interactions. Suddenly in this golden sunshine, she came in to land and my cameras are when the bags are a bit of an amateur error, but utterly beautiful sight. In terms of the crowds the shows attracted Oshkosh, are they on a par with maybe the crowds we see at Warrington or maybe even Fairford? Uh, on a par, if not bigger. But it's quite hard to judge Oshkosh because it's such a huge site and it's so spread out. You won't get everyone to sit down at the front or stand, like, for example, at Fairford or Warrington. There'll people still be wandering around. Because if they're there for seven days, there's a lot to see in seven days, so that some days they might give the flying a miss. But the nice thing is uh, their static aircraft go pretty much all the way up to the crowd line. And when you're in 100 uh, degree heat like it was when we were there, you can just pick your Cessna or Piper, go and sit under the wing of that and watch the display from under the wing of an aircraft in nice relaxed comfort, no pushing, no shoving, anything like that. Yeah, you mentioned the pushing and shoving. Um, What's the atmosphere like at a US show for people who haven't been to one? Um, Is there the kind of fight for crowd line space that we have over here or is it much more uh, laid back? I'd say it's much more laid back, it's particularly Oshkosh, because a lot of the people there are aviators. The static displays, for example, there's no barriers, but you don't see kids sort of hanging off pito probes or anything like that. It's really relaxed. The crowd line there, in fact, is just like a burnt line in the grass with a couple of traffic cones. Nothing, no barriers as such, and it's really relaxed. And a big difference is that they seem to be a lot more patriotic. For example, the flying display opened with a parachute drop, parachutists with the uh, stars and stripes, Everyone stands, remove their remove their hats for the national anthem, sings along, etc. There's something we don't really see in the UK. 
Well, over there, you got for display frequency an exclusive chat with one of the stars of the US display scene, uh, Art Nowles, who owns and flies a Sea Harrier. Before we hear that clip, just tell us what the Sea Harrier display was actually like. Well, the display was very different to what you'd expect to see in the UK of a classic jet because he is having a lot of fun. I spoke to him and his crew multiple times over the weekend and they are having a lot of fun. His, his display entry starts with what they call a photo pass, a topside banana pass, and he's absolutely caning it, maximum speed, round the bend, real wow factor, and even the crowds, I was expecting them to be like, oh, sort of English aircraft, but British aircraft, not so enthusiastic, but they were really loving it. Fast pass away, uh, fast topside into another fast pass, and a couple of route, uh, loops and rolls into the hover, but unfortunately he couldn't do a bow, because it was uh, too windy and also too hot for the engine. Okay, so now a UK airshow review and display frequency exclusive as Peter Reox speaks to Sea Harrier owner and operator Art Nowles. Now, towards the end here, there are some audio glitches, but we've kept it in because what he says we think is interesting and also quite important. So what's it like flying the world's only flyable Sea Harrier FA2? I'm grinning from ear to ear when I fly it. It is a, just an absolute pleasure to fly. The, uh, it's, it's got speed, it's got acceleration, uh, it's got what I think uh, uh, tremendous good looks. I think it is a very, very attractive airplane, although I do admit the first time I saw a Harrier of any kind, I, d- I didn't think it really looked much like an airplane. I thought it was a character of an airplane. Little T-tiny wheels on the sides and the, the wings drooping down from the top. A uh, small cockpit, it looked like uh, the tailplane was touching the ground just about. Uh, but it's a form follows function. The airplane's designed to do what it does, which no other airplane can do, and that's go 700 miles an hour, and then uh, two minutes later come to a complete dead stop at 50 feet and back up. And what's the history of this particular airframe? This is XZ-439. It is the oldest surviving Sea Harrier. The Sea Harrier was a variant of the Harrier. There are are over 45 different variants of the Harrier, but the Sea Harrier was one designed specifically to satisfy the operational requirements of the Royal Navy for shipboard operation in a... um, uh, a saltwater, uh, highly corrosive environment. The airplane was made of aluminum rather than magnesium, as the other vo- uh, versions of the Harrier were. And it, as a consequence, it weighs about a thousand pounds more than some of the magnesium GR3s. Uh, the uh, it was designed as a fighter, and to that end, they had a bubble canopy, so it, it raised the cockpit about 11 inches or so to give the pilot greater visibility, which is fantastic. And it, they also added the radar. This one. The, the, this was the second one built and the oldest surviving one. It um, uh, was originally built as an FRS-1 in uh, 1979, and then later, just before the Falkland Islands War in 1982, it was converted to an FA-2 fighter attack two to give it some air-to-ground delivery capability. This, also, this one also uh, was used as the AMRAM air-to-air missile testing, advanced medium-range air-to-air missile uh, to to supplement the Sidewinder missiles, and this airplane shot down four uh, uh, target drones. Mm-hmm. And notice on the tail, your, your rudders are different colour to the rest of the airframe. Yes. Uh, the, the first one, XC-438, 
was the first Sea Harrier. It crashed, and the rudder was taken off of that airplane and put on this one. Uh, I suspect because they needed a rudder, but it is the a, the a different color and uh, is uh, stenciled with XC438 on there. Perhaps as a way to pass the baton on to this one as the uh, the the uh, the oldest Sea Harriers. And we're, as long as we own the airplane. That rudder will always be a different color. Notice you've applied a special decal for this flight. It's very yes. special, isn't it? Yes, it is. This is the 100th flight of this airplane in civilian hands. Uh, I have to say that many of our many were skeptical that we would even get the airplane in the United States, and more skeptical that would we we would be able to fly it successfully year after year. But we've flown it for five air show seasons. Uh, I don't know how many air shows we've done but we've only missed one for a, a hydraulic failure, high 2 failure, that uh, canceled the second part of the show. The airplane flew the next day, by the way. Um, this is the 100th flight of this particular airplane. The, we flew flight number 98 and 99 yesterday, so we had some decals to commemorate that. We also will be carrying on board two bottles of special whiskey. One is a bottle of single malt scotch that we flew aboard this airplane on the very first uh, public demo of the airplane. We, we all signed that bottle. I acknowledged my fast speed forward, I think it was over 600 knots, uh, my speed backwards, which was about 30. The whole crew signed it, and we hit that bottle away. Well, we're going to fly it again today on this particular flight. So, again, recertify the maximum speed forward and the maximum speed backwards. So what's the Sea Harrier like to fly compared to the AVH? The, um, it's a different flight control system. It doesn't turn as well. It has a shorter wing, but it is much faster. It's nearly 100 knots faster than the AVH-B. It's um, uh, a little more of a challenge because the stability augmentation system, that engineering is probably 20 years old. However, many pilots who flew the Sea Harrier actually preferred the way the airplane flew compared to the AV-8B. Uh, it is faster, quicker acceleration. We do not have a head-up display in there, which is the primary instrument, the AV-8B, in most of the Harrier variants. We have round gauges and dials. Uh, we have civilian navigation equipment. We have civilian radios. Uh, weapon systems have been completely removed, so we have blank spaces in the cockpit. But it, as far as flying the airplane, it is an absolute pleasure to fly. And the final question, the one that every UK air show enthusiast wants to know, is there a chance that one day we will see your Harrier in the UK? It's going to take some support from the UK. We have made an application to the CAA to bring either this airplane or another one which we thought was a flyable candidate, we still think it's a flyable candidate, to fly four air shows in the UK to help commemorate the 30th anniversary of the Falkland Islands War. That application to fly was denied, but uh, we're still working on it. It would take some support from Rolls-Royce, and it would take some support from British Aerospace to make it happen, and we just didn't have the time to solicit that support. But if they were to be on board, if they could look at our record to see that we've done 100 flights, that we've done it safely, that we intend to operate this airplane so that we can, we can pass it on to other generations uh, in flying condition, well, thank you very much, and never say never. Never say never. Well, once again, apologies for the wind on the microphone. It was actually an air conditioning unit towards the end there, but what we did hear was really sensational stuff that Art had actually planned to bring the aircraft to the UK this summer, 
and it would have happened had the right people been supportive. There, Peter, is a man who is very keen to bring his sea harrier home. He is very, very keen. I asked the question, and he was straight in there saying they tried this year for the Falklands anniversary, and him and all of his team would really love to bring it home as such. The commentators over there still refer to it as the Royal Navy Sea Harrier, the British Sea Harrier, and they really want to bring it home. At Oshkosh, what other aircraft really stood out for you? Uh, across the week. There was just so much variety in the flying and static. I mean, in the static, they had the Orbis uh, Flying Eye Hospital DC-10, uh, one of its last trips before it gets replaced by a new uh, MD-10 that's been donated by FedEx. You had the beautiful QF-4 Phantom. Um, the Heritage flight with the A-10 and P-38 Glacier Girl was something really special. Uh, similar to the Spitfire Typhoon we saw a couple of years ago, but really sharp, worked on. Navy tactical demonstration of the F-18 Sea Hornet. That was really impressive. And the warbirds, all of them immaculate warbirds, especially the C-46 Tinkerbell looked gorgeous. Beefy, of course. There really is too much to uh, mention. I know on UCAR we sometimes almost seem to assess a show venue by how good it is for photography. How does Oshkosh measure up in that regard? Challenging but rewarding at the same time. For flying, you've got a crowd line of an immense length to choose from, and you can get to the front if you want to. Um, focal length-wise, it's pretty close, a lot of it. Some of the stuff, for example, the Warbirds, the Mustang, um, they did sort of a racetrack, and that's a lot further away, which I heard some people grumbling about, but really nice. It's the statics that pose a problem, and they get to some people that want their sort of side-on record shots or... Uh, nose-ons and those are really hard to achieve because there's no barriers the crowds will they won't try to walk into you but if you're trying to take a wide angle shot for, of a dc10 or a b29 or a c5 it's, it's pretty difficult to get and also the fact is you're going to miss something and military support it well for example you have like a10 and the uh, navy hornet in the flying spray but the problem oshkosh have is there's only one area where they can park those types which is the main um, sort of area which uh, this year was sponsored by Philip 66 it's called Philip 66 Plaza and that's a dynamic area there's aircraft coming and going um, all week so they had a C-17 that that went and a C-5 came in and there was a KC-135 and F-16 there the whole time but for example aircraft military aircraft came in and they couldn't fit them on they had a, a T-38 Talon landed on Thursday and not once could they drag it over um, because they simply didn't have the space the Navy had four Goshawks they couldn't be dragged over either. And most uh, guttingly for me, an EA-18G Growler, a brand new Growler, and unfortunately it was stuck where no one could see it because they simply didn't have the space to put it on the ramp. Well, you may not have seen the Growler, Peter, but you did see the EA-6B Prowler, which of course is the type which the Growler will eventually replace in US Navy service. And you spoke as well to the co-pilot of the Prowler. Uh, let's hear that clip now. Hi, my name is uh, Lieutenant Commander Eric Bronson, call sign B. Uh, I am a uh, co-pilot or navigator on the ESSB Prowler. I've been flying this aircraft for approximately 12 to 13 years. 
Uh, the A6 Street Prowler is a, uh, a carrier-based uh, jet aircraft designed for uh, electronic attack. So basically what this aircraft has been designed to do is jam uh, enemy radar uh, during any type of uh, air-ground mission uh, supporting uh, the uh, strike group. My role in the EA-6 as a co-pilot is uh, a couple different things. Uh, I either um, assist the pilot with actual navigation, communication, and uh, mission management of the aircraft. Uh, additionally, I'm also um, have a role of managing the weapon systems on board, so whether that's jamming the enemy radar or firing the uh, the harm missile. Uh, we're we're trained in all those aspects. The uh, EA-60, at least on the Navy side, probably only has another couple more years. Uh, currently, we're uh, training in a new aircraft called the uh, the EA-18G Growler, and that aircraft is based on the F-18 Super Hornet, uh, and it will be designed to do the same mission that the Prowler does, in addition to some air-to-air -air mission uh, work as well. Well, clearly, we're able to get up close and speak to the crews. How friendly an air show was Oshkosh, and how are you welcomed as an overseas enthusiast? Very, very. The amount of offers I had, of, would you like to see the aircraft, uh, etc., getting up close and personal, crawling under things, standing under KC-135s, listening to war stories from Air National Guard crews, getting into the cockpit of C-17s, and even such as the Pipers and the Cessnas. The pilots were really enthusiastic, they wanted to flown in to show off their aircraft. You see, in the vintage fields, like Ford Trimotors and um, private beach stagger wings, and every morning the pilots would be out polishing their aircraft because they want to look as good as possible for the paying public, but also their fellow aviators. I don't think there was a single person who didn't make a point to stop and talk to me, talking about the Harriers, the Jaguars, Tornadoes, etc., saying how much they'd love to see a Typhoon, uh, in fact, and also the Vulcan. I think if I got a pound for every time someone asked if we could send the Vulcan over, we could probably afford to uh, buy Fifi off them. Okay, one more clip now. Let's hear from the Yankee Air Museum, and they had taken their wonderful uh, flying fortress, Yankee Lady, to Oshkosh. Uh, yeah, my name is Norm, Norm Ellickson. I'm with the Yankee Air Museum. Uh, we're out of uh, Detroit, Michigan. We have our uh, museum at Willow Run Airport. We have a uh, B-17G here, which is a restored aircraft we restored about 15 years ago. We're here at Oshkosh. Uh, uh, we also have a B-25 and a C-47. Uh, we're out about five months out of the year doing air shows, we're out every weekend, especially with the B-17. We're all volunteer group. Uh, financially, the B-17 is what pays our bills. We uh, uh, fly to air shows around the country, and uh, basically, uh, we, uh, we try to sell rides. We're authorized by our FAA here to uh, sell rides on the airplane, and uh, uh, it's very popular. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, Look us up, we're on the website. You just look up yankeeairmuseum.org and uh, it's got a lot of links on it and show pictures. Uh, uh, please take a look at it. Norm Ellickson there from the Yankee Air Museum. Now, as a final point, Peter, and having myself seen the ludicrous security at Farnborough this year, how does that compare with what you witnessed at shows in the US? If I'm honest, it's pretty much non-existent. No hassle at or uh, Thunder of Michigan, we had a simple bag check. They had a lot of restricted items, for example, can't take ice, because um, it, it was pretty hot, but ice was quite inside. But there's, there's no ticket queues or anything like that. It's really well managed, which is surprising for the for the show size. Oshkosh, the traffic management, incredible, considering the amount of visitors, really incredible. It's odd having, uh, they've got minimal security and yet no barriers. When we were there, if we 
we could have gone a week earlier or a week later and try and link up a few more. We just did the two. But in the in the weeks after, it was Milwaukee, which is near Oshkosh, their uh, air and water show, which had a fantastic lineup of uh, Raptor, Thunderbirds, etc. And week after that was Chicago air show, which is held over Lake Michigan. They had the Blue Angels there, and some of the imagery I've seen from there is, is stunning as well. So it's a long way, so you, you want to make it count, but I don't think you could regret it. There's no doubt this has been a trying couple of years for the Red Arrows. The twin losses of Flight Lieutenants John Egging and Sean Cunningham and the pairing back of the team to a seven ship for 2012. But still they're among the very best teams in the world and have been ever since their formation way back in 1965. A new book came out in July, Red Arrows in Camera by Keith Wilson, which we reckon is the definitive volume published on the Reds to date, with some superb air-to-air -air photography and plenty on the team's rich traditions, including the RAF teams which displayed before the Red Arrows were formed. In the shops, the book retails for £25. We reckon it makes a great coffee table book as well as a good reference on the team for your aviation bookshelf. Thanks to Haynes, the publishers, we have three copies to give away. To begin with a chance of winning one, just answer the following question on the form you'll find on our website at www.airshows.co.uk forward slash podcast. And the question is, who is Red 10 for the 2012 season? Nice and simple. And the closing date for entries is midnight on Wednesday, October the 31st, 2012. Good luck, one and all. Now, our next item features perhaps the most underrated display team on the British airshow scene. The First World War is a period underrepresented and maybe somewhat forgotten by far too many of us. Flying a phalanx of wonderfully produced and presented replicas, the Great War display team never fails to entertain. I don't think they've ever had a bad review on our forums, and I'm pleased to say the team's Rob Metcalf joins us on the line now. Rob, hello, welcome to Display Frequency. Tell us about the Great War Display Team. The team was formed some 25 or more years ago by a group of people who were interested in the uh, uh, dawn of aviation, the Great War, and decided that uh, it was something that ought to be brought to the air show public's attention to remember the people who flew at the dawn of air power and to explain to the general public the sort of difficulties they faced. Um, they were young, they were inexperienced, the aeroplanes were almost stick and string, yet they still flew them to 20,000 feet plus without oxygen. Uh, the guys had less than the average private pilot has when he qualifies in terms of hours. Um, it was just thought that it was an era of air power that was very much overlooked by the air display public, and we have continued that tradition right through to, to, to today. In terms of the aircraft the team flies, just tell us what the team's current makeup is at the moment. A couple of years ago, we had uh, 10 aeroplanes, but we have lost two of them, and we are short of pilots for a couple of our SE5s. So at the moment, we're flying with a pair of Junkers CL1s, which is a 1918 German monoplane ground attack aeroplane. We've got uh, two SE5As, we've got a Sockett triplane, a Fokker triplane, and hopefully, towards the end of this month, we'll have a Fokker E3 Eindecker, which 
is really the very first effective fighter aircraft and that should be coming into the team for displays uh, July the short onwards. Wow, the Eindecker will be a, a fantastic addition to the team. Uh, do you have a wish list? Are there any other aircraft types you would like to add to the team in the future? Yes, uh, uh, Fokker D7, Sopit uh, Pup, Sopit Camel, uh, Bristol Fighter. I could go on for hours on the airplanes I'd like to have with the, in the team. Um, it's disappointing there is a Sopit Pup that we used to fly, but uh, we don't have access to that at the moment. And uh, we have, or other people operate a number of aircraft as a B-2 at Silo, which we'd love to see fly with the team. There are uh, three or four other Fokker uh, DR-1 triplanes. The difficulty, though, is how to manage the display with more than, well, 10 was about the maximum we could cope with. Eight aeroplanes, it takes a lot of choreography and practice to get the display to look good. Of course the aircraft you fly are replicas, very good replicas, but just how close are they to the original World War One technology? If you were to take the Fokker triplane, uh, John Day built it uh, a few years ago, apart from the fact that it has a radio rather than a rotary engine, it would be difficult to tell it apart from the real thing uh, without a very close inspection. The Sopwood triplane, uh, similarly, until you get very close, is the real thing. The uh, SE-5s and the Junkers CL-1s, the SE-5s are uh, plans-built. They're a 7 8 version of the real thing. And until you put them next to the real thing, they look very good. The Junkers CL-1s are based on a Bowers Flybaby, and they look very good until you get close up, or if you know exactly what a younger CL1 looked like. Um, fortunately, uh, not many people do. Um, they, we do accept that they're ersatz, uh, but uh, they fill the slot. Reading the reviews of your displays on our forums down the years, one thing that gets said time and time again is that there's always something happening at Crowd Centre in front of the crowd, and it's a very compact display routine that you fly, isn't it? It is. We aim to have a frontage of just under a thousand meters we go to a depth away from the crowd of about a thousand meters and we use the airspace upwards to maximum 800 feet and the whole design of the display is to keep something in front of the crowd at all times um, we do this by having three layers so you've got the lower layer of aeroplanes which at the beginning might be the uh, Sopwood triplane and the Junker CL1s and then behind that and slightly higher are the SE5s and finally again slightly further away and higher up will be the Sopwood triplane and the Fokker triplane and as the display continues the lower element as it finishes moves out at low level and the two upper elements move down towards the crowd and then the original low level element goes up at the back to form the high element so as people are looking from the crowd they're always looking through all our aeroplanes um, in very close proximity. Yeah it's great to watch and as I say always really well received. How do you choose the pilots who fly on the team? Fundamentally if you've got an aeroplane we'll be prepared to fly with you. Um, having said that we practice at the beginning of each year very very hard. We do two or three practice weekends at uh, middle wallet where 
you know, Army Air Corps kindly allow us to practice. And we will fly six practice routines over a weekend with really quite hard debriefs. Uh, I'm an ex-Air Force pilot and I can recall some very hard debriefs in the Air Force. And our debriefs with the Great War team are very, very similar. Um, if you make a mistake, it's pointed out. The way you fly, we have um, people on the ground watching and criticizing. And it's this constant striving to improve the display um, that makes the display, we think, very good. Um, if people are prepared or are unable to fly to that standard, uh, then they tend to withdraw of their own free will. We don't very often have to um, ask people to leave um, because the people, sort of people who are able to fly any of the aeroplanes are usually capable of operating them within our team. Of course, yeah. And in terms of individual airshow venues, which ones stand out as favourites of yourself and of the team? I, I suppose the, the best are those where you've got a nice um, landscape behind. Seaside venues are very difficult because it's such a long frontage and we've got a very tight display centre. Um, they, I suppose, are our least favoured. But if you were to take somewhere like um, Shoreham or Cosford, uh, those are two we're doing um, this year, and those are the sort of displays we like where you can display a round crowd centre and allow the people at the ends of the crowd to look in through the side of the display. Um, so yes, those I suppose are, are our favourites. Um, We've enjoyed Dunsfold in the past, and when we were at Biggin Hill, we always enjoyed that. In fact, we, we won there, uh, the prize for the best display there two or three years ago, before the display there ceased. And Rob, for you personally, what memory would you say really stands out for you as uh, an all-time personal highlight? No shadow of a doubt. It was flying in front of the Queen at Fairford for the 90th anniversary of the uh, Royal Air Force. We were the only non-Air Force team there and we opened the show after the fly passed and it was simply magnificent there she was sitting watching us and we are charging towards her pulling up and throwing the airplanes around the sky truly a most memorable moment and I think for the whole team that would count as one of their great moments in their aviation careers. It must have been amazing. Uh, how did that invitation come about? They were trying to demonstrate the Air Force from its formation in 1918 right through to uh, 2008 and uh, a couple of contacts in the Air Force um, mentioned us, the organiser got in touch and we were asked to provide a, uh, a display. We were due to fly at REAP that year, so we are based at Rankham and we happily uh, fitted in to fly for Her Majesty. Well we're now towards the end of June, you had displays uh, scheduled at Throckmorton and Cosford, but how's the rest of the display season shaping up this year? We've got a couple of aircraft at Old Buckingham. We've got four aircraft operating at the Tank Museum at Boddington. They've got um, one of the tanks from the Field War Horse there, and we are providing a ground attack and fighter scenario there. Um, we've got a couple of aircraft here at um, uh, Duxford on 30th of July for um, Legends. We've got four aircraft at East Fortune in Scotland. We've got the whole team at Silo couple at Gunsville, the whole team are at Shoreham, and then we've got 
four aircraft again at seething uh, towards the middle of uh, September. With a bit of luck, we'll also be in Lille at the end of the uh, uh, September, which is more or less the end of the season. Well, the weather's been awful for the show season so far this year in the main. Uh, how affected are your aircraft by bad weather and how bad does the weather have to be to keep the Great War Display team on the ground? <laughs> yes, we lost the display at Stone Arrows. We were due to take um, three or four of our aeroplanes up to, uh, to Stone Arrows and that fell through because we just couldn't get there. Um, it's very difficult sometimes for particularly non-pilot organisers to realise the difficulty we do have operating the aeroplanes. Um, they are stick and string, it's open cockpit, uh, no instrumentation, and the sort of cloud and rain really does make it very difficult to move from one place to another. We only cruise around 60, 70 knots as well, so it's a, a slow process. Um, the major problem, though, is wind. Strong winds make it almost in, uh, impossible to fly the aeroplanes, particularly at low level. And we all like to land into wind, and crosswinds are a major problem. So we need grass runways and no crosswind. If the crosswind, if the wind is more than 15 knots, it becomes very difficult, and we rarely fly uh, once it's approaching 20. So the weather is a major factor. But having said that, and having had to cancel one display this year, over the 10 or 12 years I've been flying with the team, I can only think of uh, three or four displays we've cancelled for weather. And on one of those occasions, it was a display at Southport, it wasn't only us, um, even the ugly buttons, as they were then, the brightening windwalkers, couldn't get there because all the grass airfields in between uh, the South of England and Southport were flooded. Uh, that did cause a problem. As a final point, Rob, when you are at air shows and you meet the public and they see your aircraft up close, what sort of reaction do you get from the general public? We get very, very good uh, response. The general public appear to like us very much. And um, one of that uh, sort of a minor whinge, um, we think the general public like us much more than the display organisers do. Um, we're not sexy. Um, if you talk about a Spitfire or a Hurricane or a Messerschmitt 109, people will have sort of six or seven Spitfires at a show and they won't have us. Um, and I think they're losing something because I think the air show uh, program needs to be as varied as it possibly can be. Um, we accept that with lots of pilots, um, it means more hotel rooms, but we don't bring any ground crew, so it balances from there. But we get a very good response, and um, we have some wonderful emails from people who've seen us that we really enjoy the show. Well, Rob, thank you. A great chat and a great insight, too, into how the Great War Display Team operates. Many, many thanks for joining us on Display Frequency. It's been my pleasure, Dan. Uh, thank you very much indeed. That's all we have time for in this edition of Display Frequency. Hopefully we'll squeeze in one more show before the season ends. Send us your feedback and those audio boo clips. Remember, this is your show. Tell us what you'd like to hear. From myself, Dan O'Hagan, until the next time, it's goodbye. Right. 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 Right.